Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Bands Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, and academics and stat heads. We are sponsored by the EPL Prospectus, a 280-page guide of the upcoming season created by a team of 25-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for Football, Analytics Plus Eye Candy. Available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Today we are joined by I Got Your Back soccer analyst Harshal Patel. Also on the pod is Daniele Prock, a For- Forbes contributor and Total Football Analysis Cydia A podcast host, who happens to be a professional striker for North Carolina FC. I am host Chris Mumford, known as the Professor. Bella Ciao. During the international break, we reflect on how the strange the season start has been. Have we moved to a parallel simulation or universe where Everton, Aston Villa, and Leicester are the top three in the Premier League? I want to go home. We offer our first take on Project Big Picture proposed by the ownership of Liverpool and Man United. Those Americans. We evaluate if teams have filled their soft spots in the transfer window. What are you doing, Man United and Chelsea? Finally, we preview next week's matches, Everton-Liverpool, Chelsea-Southampton, Man City-Arsenal, Man United-Newcastle, Leicester-Aston Villa, and Leeds-Wolves. But first, let's dive into big breaking news about Project Big Picture, a proposal by the ownership of Liverpool and Manchester United. Here's what they're offering. 250 million pounds immediately to the EFL to compensate for lost match day revenue. 100 million one-off gift to the FA to cover for coronavirus losses. 8.5% annual Premier League revenue to go to operating costs and good causes, including the FA. For the remainder, 25% of all combined Premier League and Football League revenues will go to EFL clubs. 6% of gross revenues will go to pay for stadium improvements across the top four divisions. A fan charter, including capping away tickets to only £20 and away travel is subsidized. But this is what they're asking for. Special status for the nine longest serving clubs. Basically, a vote of six of so-called long-term shareholders required to make major changes, including rules, regulations, removal of chief executive, as well as club ownership. The Premier League moves from 20 clubs to 18. Two sides will be automatically relegated every season, uh, and the top two championship teams promoted. The 16th place Premier League club moves into a playoff tournament with the championships third fourth and fifth place teams there will be new rules on distribution of premier league television income uh, as well as the abolition of the league cup and community shield Um, there are some additional um, uh, changes including uh, establishing a women's professional league independent of the premier league or the fa uh, and all uh, FFP regulations will apply. Overall, 
the clubs throughout the pyramid will reduce from 92 to 90. Harshel, what's your take on this, this proposal here? It's intriguing. And I mean, there is quite a lot of good stuff in there in terms of obviously the money that's being offered to the EFL and the FA and the continued support, <clears throat> excuse me, the continued support that will be offered to the lower leagues. But I, I think it's basically a blatant power grab by the big six clubs in in the Premier League to sort of consolidate most of the decision of the decision making power in their hands. And I, I don't know if I can't see any reason why the smaller Premier League clubs or the other Premier League clubs would necessarily be in agreement, even though I could potentially see the EFL clubs. So obviously the clubs in the championship, League One, League Two, maybe being uh, open to this because I think the, the amount of money they would get would increase drastically. But I can't see why the rest of the Premier League would agree to this. And if it does go through, I, I think it will just accelerate the move towards the European Super League, which we've been hearing about a lot over the last four or five years. There have been sort of attempts made by various clubs to try and set up a European Super League. And this sort of uh, uh, development will, ex will basically make it uh, you know, easier and quicker to have that sort of thing uh, come through in the next few years. Please don't, please don't. I'm already feeling <laughs> sad about this. It sounds very, very American as a, uh, as a proposal. And I really uh, would not be able to follow a Super League. I have a question, uh, Harshal. You were saying yeah. that for the proposal, obviously there's going to be a, a few years before this even takes place, but uh, you were reading that uh, the vote required would be two-thirds of the Premier League teams. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And I mean, I'll probably, we'll probably need to do a bit of research in terms of how the vote would mm -hmm. need to happen because it also obviously involves the EFL teams, right? So it will probably need to go through at an EFL level and at a Premier League level. So I'm, I'm not sure if it would need a two-thirds vote in either of those two groups or a simple majority would do it. So we'll need to see. But uh, I think a simple majority would suffice because most of the Premier League resolutions are passed by simple majority. This one might need a two-thirds vote. I don't know. I'm not sure. If it is the two-thirds, basically, you only need half of the teams because you already have the big six voting yes. Yeah, so exactly. you don't need another seven and that would be it. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's quite tricky, I think. I'm not really, as you said, uh, it's a very American way of going about sports and I don't think we can be surprised given that Liverpool and Man United owned by American owners are the ones driving mm -hmm. this. And it's also interesting to note that Rick Parry, who's the um, head of the EFL, who's also come out publicly in support of this and obviously and has been working on this with the, with the ownership of those two clubs. He is a former, um, I believe, chief executive of the Premier League, if I'm not mistaken. So he has had time heading the Premier League as well before he came into the EFL. So, it's interesting. Let's see how it goes. But at first glance, I'm not really in favor of this. I wouldn't, I'm not happy with this. So let me provide a steel man argument for this, okay? Um, namely, one that is for this, this um, change. Uh, let's call a spade a spade. It's already a big six league, right? If you look at where most of the broadcasts are happening, it's amongst the big six. The... Uh, EFL is in financial disarray. It is a disaster right now. 
Okay. It was a disaster before COVID. They were spending 104% of revenues on player salaries. So all it was doing was just counting on some new rich owner continuing to spend money to try to keep up with everybody else, right? So for the foreseeable future, the primary source of income for the EFL doesn't exist and they still want to play games, okay? And that's crazy. And and so we have this nostalgic uh, love that, oh, the local club is so important part of the community and I totally get that. The problem is, is the local community either doesn't have the money or doesn't want to spend the money to support that local club. That's why it's in the predicament that it is. So in effect, we've got this pyramid that's, it's going to crash at some point. And what the big six are saying is, hey, guess what? We've more or less won the championship going forward. We have such a natural competitive advantage. We are going to win it going forward. So why not basically create a sustainable system, and I hate to say this, but a more German system, right? Where you do have a more thoughtful integrated as opposed to uh, historically catches catch can. That's that that would probably be the the major argument that I would say is we've got we've we've got to do it do it this way just to to keep this pyramid. And if we want to believe in community football. This is the price of doing business. Daniele, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting viewpoint on it. I wonder if this would... Um, so would you, would you say that this plan would help, uh, will, uh, will be beneficial to keep having things like a Leicester winning the league one in, uh, in 50 years? You know, the fairy tales because... We definitely do need that in uh, in football, and people do want to see that. So, how do you see that playing out? Would you say that the gap will be too big for uh, smaller clubs to have a shot at the higher position? You said it's already a big six league. Would it would the gap even widen even more? You think? I think the gap's already pretty wide. Leicester was a major Cinderella story, of which, by the way, they had a tremendous amount of financing. This was not a Sheffield United that won the mm -hmm. championship. I mean, at, at you know, $16 million in payroll. Uh, so I, I, I think that, uh, yes, it's going to make sure that the entrenched players stay the entrenched players. There's no, there was zero threat of relegation, not that there ever was in the first place. Um, so that's what I would think about that. I will tell you another key feature is I really think that these guys are playing for the long game and they're going to say, okay, we're going to try to save the English pyramid. But if it doesn't, guess what? If they say no to us, we're popping off to do the Super League with, with the La Liga and the City A and all those other guys because they're going to get a lot less flack if it's like, hey, We tried to save it, but the Premier League, who had its own entrenched interests, didn't want to do this. Would you? So this is in effect. They they may not even be looking to do this. They may be going after the Super League concept, but they need to do this for political reasons. Harshell, what's your image? What's that? Safeguard their image. That's exactly right. Um, Harshell, what do you think about that? Yeah, as I said earlier, that I, I mean. 
you could absolutely be right that this sort of a smoke screen would make that happen. But I think that's a bit unlikely because, uh, so for example, Andrea Agnelli, who is uh, the, the CEO or the chairman at Juventus, and he heads the European Club uh, Association, the ECA, he's basically been one, been one of the most vocal um, advocates to create a European Super League. And it's it's something that will need the rest of the clubs to fall, to agree as well, right? So you need the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona in from La Liga to agree from Italy, probably the Inter, Milan and Juventus, like maybe Napoli, I'm not sure. Germany, it would probably be Bayern and Borussia Dortmund, for example. So whoever those clubs are who they choose to go into with the European Super League. But I don't think that agreement will happen that quickly. And in any case, even this plan that they're talking about uh, with if it does come into fruition, would probably be implemented around the 2022-2023 season. So that's two seasons down the line. So there is time for them to maybe come up with a plan and come up with the European Super League. But I don't think it's an imminent threat. What Daniele spoke about in terms of uh, the gap widening. So the thing is, I, what's going to happen in my opinion is the gap is going to widen between the Premier League and the EFL for sure. Because they're going to um, obviously even though they will be giving money in terms of overall broadcast revenues and 25% of which will go to all EFL clubs, I think the value of the Premier League broadcast deal is such that um, it's just, it, it's humongous. The, 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 the money that comes into the Premier League from the broadcast deal dwarfs any other sports broadcast deal, let alone football in the world. So that money is going to flow to the Premier League clubs and within the Premier League, if they renegotiate their uh, broadcast deal, which is which is pretty uh, sort of equal, or I'd say it's it's pretty generous to every club at the moment. Where even the team that finishes bottom in twentieth place in the Premier League will receive receives about a hundred odd million pounds a year just from broadcast money. They might renegotiate those deals to make it more um, attractive or more weighted towards the big six, with the argument that hey, I mean, more people are going to tune in to watch a Man United versus Chelsea than. Sheffield United versus Brighton. So why should Sheffield United and Brighton get the same money that Man United and Spurs get, right? So as an example. So uh, that might happen, which could increase the gap between the big six and the other clubs. And secondly, what is a very important point I think here is that that group of nine will have veto powers on ownership changes in the rest of the league with a two-thirds majority in that group of nine, which means that's of those nine clubs, six only six clubs need to vote one way or the other for them to veto uh, uh, a proposed ownership change. And obviously, the, that two-thirds is very conveniently comes down to six. So then you have the big six being able to protect their interests. Where, for example, if there is someone who's a well, like a billionaire or someone coming in to buy a Sheffield United, for example, or a, a Brighton or a Newcastle, the big six could veto that and then just keep them where they are and not allow them to have the ownership and the money to break in. And that I think I is the biggest uh, yeah. challenge here, which I have trouble wrapping my head around. Well, and and I and that's absolutely true. And that's what that's what the cost is for subsidizing or keeping to existence community football in England, right? And again, the argument the is that it's it's those I mean, it'd be those six controlling everything, right? So I, I that's the I don't think that's the price. That's too high higher price which I think to pay. Okay. Personally. Well I, I don't know if it is or isn't. I'm not I'm not completely settled on this. I'm clearly very American about things. I mean <laughs> I I like the fact that the NFL and the NBA 
that the worst team could end up being a playoff and win uh, the Super Bowl or the finals. That to me is fun. I will tell you that I worry that the the EPL is going to turn into another La Liga or Bundesliga where you have one or two teams and everybody else are banana peels for the most part, right? And right now, Serie A and, and EPL are the only – I think they're the really competitive leagues, uh, right? And when I say competitive, it's five teams I mean, it's, or seven teams. Even Serie A to an extent, I think, is relative. Juventus have won, what, eight, nine titles in a row, so – I, I agree. That's a great point, but watch this season, right? And, and yeah. I'll, I'll mention another great point is that EPL, you've got the emergence of the Leeds, the Wolves, right? Sheffield United, I don't think is going to have the staying power for that. The Everton's, right? Where they could maybe even get in the, any one of those. I, I don't know if Leeds could become champion, uh, you know, Champions League, but certainly Europa. So could could the middle markets like the Leicesters continue, you know, develop more in the EPL? I just think that when the house is burning down, you're not going to negotiate the cost of water at this point. And that's, I imagine, where most of the EFL is. But if you're in the bottom half of the EPL, you're like, well, wait a minute, this kind of sucks. But if I, get, if I get relegated, at least I'm not going out of business, right? And that's that's a that's something you have to seriously consider from just a survival perspective. We're going to be talking about this a lot more, guys, uh, over over the coming weeks. And I'm curious to see is this going to start happening in City A? There was a proposal in June by some American investors to take over City A's marketing. Uh, La Liga is a little bit different because Barca and Real Madrid they negotiate their own TV contracts, right? Um, so they they got it going on. I don't know enough about the Bundesliga, how, how that whole structure works, but I imagine it's well organized, well thought through, and everybody benefits in the right way. Um, so I'm, I'm not worried about those guys. But let's go ahead and turn our attention. Transfer window wrapped up. Okay. Um, you know, who do we, let's go through uh, some of the teams and just hit the, the very high notes on who we think did a good job. And so, what what team are we talking about? What were the gaps, and did they fill those gaps in the transfer window? Um, Harshel, do you want to lead us off with with? Uh, let's go ahead and pick your favorite team, just because um, Man United. <laughs> how how have they done in the uh, in the? If you transfer? want me to give them like an alphabet grade or something, I'd probably be like a D or something, or like a a D? four on ten or something like that. Okay, so what were their biggest needs, and what did they so, end up with? According to me. Their biggest, United's biggest need was to bring in obviously someone on the right wing. United haven't had a right, a natural right sided player since. I mean, I can't remember, to be honest. I can't remember. Maybe Antonio Valencia. It's been a while since United have had a natural winger playing on the right or even someone who can come inside because since then we've seen Juan Mata and, and the failed Angel Di Maria season. Uh, uh, and a number of other guys tried out there, but there's, it's not a, a, a role that's been filled properly. So that was the priority. But at the same time, there was a need to have uh, a, a top-level centre-back come in, left-back cover, and I'd say uh, a defensive midfielder as well. And when you look at the transfer business, they've hit just one of them. They've managed to bring in Alex Tellers in from Porto, but even that deal was done on deadline day when it could have been done much earlier in the window. And there was no 
nobody came in at center back nobody came in in midfield other than goni van der beek which is a good i'm happy with that signing but it's again a, a curious one because it's a signing in an area where united are arguably quite well stocked with bruno fernandes paul pogba even mata to an extent they already have the creative midfielder type so van der beek is a very good player but i don't know if he was needed at this point ahead of other players and obviously the whole sancho saga dominated the summer and he didn't come in and united ended up going for an 18 year old from penyarol in uruguay facundo pelistri uh they've signed apparently one of the best young players in in europe in amar traore from atlanta who will come in in january he's a 19 year old and then obviously edinson cavani on a free transfer so it's all and all of this happened on deadline day after sancho obviously didn't work out a loan deal for dembele usman dembele at barcelona didn't work out so it all smacks of desperation and a lack of long term planning which has been the hallmark of united ever since alex ferguson retired so in those 7 8 years since ed woodward became ceo or whatever his designation is uh, it's been characterized by last minute trolley dashes and you know panic buying rather than actually going for the manager's targets and it's been it's the same thing this time so daniel any any thoughts on the, the man united transfer I agree that um looking at the Man United front four uh, has a lot of potential especially the starters so um besides the strange the last strange game I think that going forward they're going to be uh one of the best attacking sides I was wondering Chris if how do you see the the goalkeeping battle um evolving at Man U do you like seeing the Henderson on the bench or uh, does it hurt to see that well last game with standing right which was just like this a friend of mine who builds nuclear power plants says that you don't have a nuclear meltdown because of one big mistake it's a series of little mistakes so mm-hmm. we'll, we're we're going to put that game aside i think it's awesome that de gea and and henderson are there They're, the playing styles are different um and uh i think you have two legit top six or top eight starters fighting for one slot the key is can you keep them happy for the right time right i am worried well i shouldn't say worried you know i i think that man united should have put their money in into defense they've got plenty of offensive options but i'm tired of hearing man united fans say oh we need to drop another 80 million dollars on a center back when i see a 40 million dollar uh team which was formerly a 20 million dollar team in Leeds United more or less go head to head against Liverpool and and in Man City and I just wonder if the manager and or the players have the mindset of closing those gaps and gritting it out and winning the 50-50 balls soccer or football is not a game of rocket surgery right there there're certain things you can do and if if there's a is there's a coach that can take championship level players and have them compete against the best in the Premier League. I think Man United is going to be able to to get get by on on their existing players. So that that's that's my take on Man United. Um Harshel walk us through the other uh poster child for the uh for the transfer window which is uh Chelsea. So here's what I think of Chelsea's business. Now it's 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 quite interesting cuz they've gone out and backed frank lampard to the hill they've gone and bought the players he wanted they've and obviously there is a bit of um, 
sort of they had a bit of money left over because they had a two window transfer ban which was reduced to one but then they didn't spend in january this year so they didn't spend for two transfer windows so they had that money plus this year's budget um it's important to note that they received 50 odd million from atletico for alvaro morata this summer so that also bolstered their coffers so they had the money they had the firepower basically in a window where not many clubs had that much money obviously because of covid so which is why they were it looked like a bit of an outlier because they but it it's backed up by the fact that they had the money to go out and spend so it's not as if though you know roman abramovich just dug into his pockets and financed it again which he may have to an extent but they did have the money to go out and make those deals uh what's interesting for me is the fact that they've gone and bought a lot of good attacking talent and they've then tried to sort of make do with their defense which i feel was the bigger concern for them last season they conceded 54 goals they finished fourth but they conceded 54 goals in the league last season so in my opinion their defense would should have been the priority for the team but they've spent 50 million on ben chilwell who's coming in left back and they've bought thiago silva in on a free transfer and malansa on a free transfer from nice as well but he's gone out on loan he was all the plan was always to send him out don't forget mendy That's yeah. right, and of course, yes, Mendy, who on, on by Edward Mendy, by every measure, was probably the greatest difference maker of all the five leagues last year. Whether he transfers to the EPL, time will tell. Right, Danielle, yeah. what, what's what's your take on on the on Chelsea's uh, transfer? Well, if you look at the bench of Chelsea, you um, you have players like last game there was Mount, Giroud, Kovacic. uh positions they were on the bench and it makes you think that uh, in terms of rotation with Champions League and what not they um they will be able to really keep up in any in any competition but at the same time when you have young players put together in the same team it's not too easy to click right away and i think but, we're seeing that i think in the first few games we've already seen that even lampard is struggling to figure out okay where do i play these guys what are their best yeah, roles okay. and all of that for and like for example hakim ziyech is not hasn't even he's not even fit enough yet so once ziyech comes into the mix they've got i completely agree they have some absolutely brilliant amazing uh, you know attacking talent but as you said the challenge for lampard is going to be to figure out who to play and when to play and how to play them which i think this season is going to be his Uh, sort of it's going to define whether he's going to stay on at chelsea or i i wouldn't be surprised if he's fired at the end of the season because there's no excuse anymore right yeah i think they're going to be able to make a run for the title for this reason because you have established teams like uh city and liverpool who have been working together for so long um you're going to see a lot of uh i would say waves in their performances so sometimes yeah. it will make you think wow this team can really uh go go far this year maybe and then they're going to drop uh, points maybe against a uh a team in the bottom of the table that's what i expect from chelsea that said top four placement at the end i think that it will be a disappointment yet after this campaign after all the money they spent it will be disappointing the uh if they don't achieve that Yeah, I mean I I will tell you the way I look at this it's it's the same as Man United. It's it's like saying, "Oh yeah, that's a Man United signing or that's a Chelsea signing." I just feel like it doesn't match what their 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 real needs are and they're just going out and trying to buy the best players they can and they'll try to figure it all out. 
And I just think that you see the Liverpools of the world that are really being very intelligent. You know, they sang the blues, they didn't have any money, but they kept their mouth shut. And then they picked up and you look at, at the transfers and you're like, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Check. That makes a lot of sense too. And I just, I, I, I agree with you, Harshell, that they had a lot of money stockpiled and they were ready to go. But to me, I, I feel like part of my football development soul died when they brought in all those folks because all these youngsters who helped them get to third place, right? Uh, they're, you know, the top tier ones, you, as Daniele said, they're sitting on the bench. Um, but, but the next level down, they're all being loaned out for the fifth or sixth year in a row. And it's like, God, let's un unlock some of this talent. It'll be interesting to see these guys. Werner, he's had 11 shots on goal. He hasn't scored one. He's second in the league for those that haven't been able to convert on high opportunity or on, uh, you know, dangerous opportunities. So we're going to see where that plays out. Um, let's go ahead and turn our attention to, um, Arsenal. What's, what's going on with Arsenal, Harshal? How did they do in the transfer window? I think Arsenal are a hilarious club to follow just because of all the, um, the contrasting views you see if you follow, you know, fan accounts or whatever on Twitter and elsewhere, because there's so much, um, extremism in the fan base in terms of it, it's either absolutely great and Arsenal is the best club in the world and Arteta is going to win the Premier League or... He's absolute, you know, he's no good at all and Arsenal are no good. It's always swings between extremes in terms of the mood on social media. So it's interesting to follow them in that respect. But having said that, I've, I have been a big fan of the work that Arteta has done ever since he was appointed back in November, I think it was last year. Because even though, so he's had a lot less time in the dugout than, for example, Lampard and Socha have had at Chelsea and United, respectively. But he, Arsenal are the club which look like they have a plan on the pitch. You can see a proper system. You can see a way, the way in which he wants to play. You can see how he wants to use, which players he wants to use and how he wants to use them and all of that. So, as we've spoken about on the podcast earlier as well, it's, it's about whether you want the process or the results. I mean, what takes primacy? And with Arsenal and Arteta at the moment, it's clearly the process that's... Uh, that's the priority and it, it, I think it's working out and they've made some good signings as well. They, they, they've picked up Gabriel Magalhaes from Lille. I think that's a very good signing at centre-back. Uh, they managed to convince Danny Chavez to come back for another season on loan. Uh, they And obviously, the big one on deadline day was where they managed to sign Thomas Partey from Atletico after uh, activating his release clause. So, they've got that solid defensive presence in midfield, but he's also someone who can pass. So, they have done well in the in the transfer window, I think, and uh, probably pretty good contenders for top four this year. Asha, would you say that moving forward, Arsenal are going to have to figure out one player in that central midfield position that's going to be like the reference player? Because right now they're rotating Rice, Ceballos, there's Niles, there's Shaka. Do you think that's one of the uh, few aspects where Arteta is going to be come to a decision for the uh, good of the team? I wouldn't say one player, but so what we've seen from Arteta is he's played a 3-4-3 for the majority of this season and towards like the back end of last season, but he wants to play a 4-3-3. So we've seen um, the, the in possession, Arsenal move from a 3-4-3 to a 4-3-3 pretty seamlessly because he's had the option of playing Kieran Tierney as a left-sided centre-half and 
Uh, he plays either Saka or Maitland-Niles at left wing back. So when Arsenal have the ball, whoever's the left wing back, either of those two guys comes into midfield, becomes a third midfielder, and Tierney goes out and becomes a left back. So then you have, for example, this season it's been mainly say Xhaka and Elneny who's somehow come back into this team after having been out on loan and you know basically going to leave Arsenal, but he's come back and so it's Elneny, Xhaka, and one of Maitland-Niles and uh, and Saka who's been the three-man midfield. But now with these signings and obviously I think once players get up. To, speed in terms of fitness. I wouldn't be surprised if it's Xhaka, Pate and uh, Shebaios as the uh, first choice midfield. And when you look at that, I think that's a very complete midfield trial because you've got guys who can pass, you've got guys who can tackle, you've got guys who can dribble. There's creativity in there. So rather than one player, I think if he manages to make Pate, Shebaios and Xhaka his first choice trial in most games, I think that's a very good starting point for Arsenal. Interesting. Let, let, let's turn our attention to uh, maybe folks that seem to be a little more sane in their transfer policy. Um, Liverpool. Um, I think they are generally re- regarded as having some high marks in that. Uh, Harshal, what's wh- what's your take on that? This, this window has just been another example of Liverpool, I think, doing absolutely sensational business because it's not just the fact that they've managed to buy the people they've managed to buy, but they've also managed to generate a lot of money through sales, which they've been doing for a while. Michael Edwards, who's the sort of de facto sporting director there, has done a fantastic job at that over the years. You look at some of the previous sales they've made, you know, like Jordan Ayub going to Burnham for 15 million, Dominic Solanke going for around 20 million. He's repeated the trick this time. He sold Brian Brewster, who's yet to make a Premier League appearance, to Sheffield United for almost 24, 25 million. Um, he managed to sell this 18-year-old centre-half, Kijana Hover, to Wolves for around 10 million. Um, there have been a couple of other sales for sort of similar amounts. And then he, he brings in, one, of, in my opinion, one of the best central midfielders in the world, in Thiago, in for about 20 million. You bring in Jota from Wolves, who's just 23 years old. People tend to forget how young he is. He's just 23 for 40, 45 odd million. So, and you solve the problem which you've had at left back where you don't have backup for 11 million. You've got Costa Simicas in from Olympiacos for 11 million. So, again, you've managed to fill the holes in the squad. You've managed to um, also have a bit of a new or a, a dimension that you didn't have earlier in terms of creativity from midfield because the Liverpool midfield has always been very functional on the clock. But with Thiago, they now have the option of, you know, They've always had the likes of Alexander Allen and Robertson and Mane and Salah creating havoc from out wide. But hey, if that's not working, let's just give the ball to Thiago and he'll put a ball through for these guys to run onto. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that develops. But it's just another superb window, I think, for Liverpool. Are we talking about the second worst defense in the league so far with 11 goals? It's been a crazy <laughs> season so far, man. I mean, the- it's that's it, this season has just been crazy. On previous episodes, uh, Chris and I have spoken about how this is going to be a very messy season. And that's what it is. It, that, that 7-2 was just, it was a, a bizarre Sunday, man. 6-1 uh, earlier on where United lost 6-1 and then Liverpool go on and better that and lose 7-2. Although I will say that um, the... Liverpool have used a very high line this season. It's I think it's higher than what they were using last season as well. So that has been caught out quite a bit. And it's become like that's what Villa were doing. They were just because I mean, I remember in the second half against Villa, there was a chance which Ollie Watkins, he had already scored a hat-trick in the first half. Um, 
he uh, and Adrian made a save with his foot. Otherwise, he would have got a fourth goal. But mm-hmm. it came from Fabinho, who was who had moved into center, uh, moved back to center half, and Joe Gomez had been substituted. So the center backs were Van Dijk and Fabinho. Fabinho was on the halfway line. Van Dijk was ahead of the halfway line, and Watkins was basically free to run through. He had the entire half, and he couldn't be caught offside because Fabinho was in the opposition half. So when you're playing that higher defensive line, it's it's going to be easy for other teams to catch you out. So well, I'm going to take a different a, vi- a different view, Arshel. It's clear they're moving up ten yards higher, maybe even farther mm-hmm. than they did last season. I just like the fact that Klopp is experimenting with something new. And if if his hand gets slapped, his hand gets slapped. Let's remember in that game, there were three deflected shots that went yeah. to the goal. You had Adrian really fuss things up by uh, giving away that first goal. And Daniela, I'd love to hear your take. What happens when your starting keeper disappears? Your, your starting striker who put a lot of pressure on the ball to avoid those long balls going in? Um, as well as you had your captain Henderson, who is really the the hammer in the midfield. All three of those guys are gone. How does that change a mindset of a team? Well, if it had been up to me this transfer window, I would have recruited defenders that can deflect the ball off the goal instead of on goal. But uh, no, that that game was was strange. Like you said, a lot of things didn't didn't go well. If you you know what the episode that summed it up was. Uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold miscalculating that ball at the end. That's yeah. not him. That's not him. Uh, because if you if you realize that the ball is is too long, then you you drop and you and you run back. You don't go for a you don't gamble on the ball. Um, yeah, Chris. In that uh, in that game, it's 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 hard. It's impossible to just um, talk about all the things that went wrong. But about the keeper, uh, I would argue that Adrian had some signs of maybe not being ready when called up last season, if you remember against Atletico in Champions League, he had uh, that terrible pass. And, you know, we've heard about uh, Adrian being responsible for a couple of goals, like, a couple of goals in important games for Liverpool. Would you have uh, would you have uh, done something about it in the transfer window? Because To be honest, uh, Daniele, sorry to interrupt, but so the EFL window is still open. So clubs can uh, still, like clubs in England, the Premier League, they can still buy from clubs in the Championship and lower leagues and vice versa. Mm. And according to rumours and whatever's going around, Liverpool are moving for Jack Butland, who's at Stoke. He's a former England keeper. He's, I think he's got more than 10 caps for England, maybe or maybe not. But he has played for England a few times. And they're apparently moving for Jack Butland. And he, if they sign him in time, he could probably go into the team straight away against face Everton at the weekend. So what you're saying that they might just be moving to sort of correct that area of the pitch. So we should wrap up on Liverpool, even though I love talking about them, but I will say that they signed an 18 year old goalkeeper, Marcelo Pitaluga. Am I saying that right? Daniele? Uh, You come, you come up here. I'm prepared here. It's Pita, P-I-T-A-L-U-G-A, Pitaluga. He's Brazilian. And uh, actually, he, the, his trainer is Allison's brother uh, on this. So um, I think the Brazilian goalkeeper pipeline is alive and well. And uh, I, I'm okay with where Liverpool is because I'd love to have signed Emmy Martinez, but he wanted he wanted to be the starter, and there's no way that was going to happen at Liverpool. Mm-hmm. So let's let's change our gears to to Tottenham. 
how did they, what, what did the grade that they got in this transfer window here, Arshel? I think they had a pretty good window. And so once I think Mourinho, even though, I mean, he can find reasons to complain about anything, but I think, I don't really think he can complain too much about this transfer window at first because uh, they, they had a pretty good window. I mean, they brought in one of the best young left backs, I think, in Europe in Viguilon. They managed to get Gareth Bale back. And obviously, there is he's not played yet. He's not fit. So, time will tell in terms of how effective he will be on the pitch. But even just off the pitch and just for all the connections that he has with Spurs and all of that, it's still a great signing just to boost fan morale and even morale in the dressing room because you've got someone who's won four Champions Leagues, someone who scored in two of those finals and probably one of those goals is probably the greatest goal in the history of the Champions League, right? So, and they managed to bring in cover for uh, Harry Kane as well. They signed uh, they signed Carlos Vinicius on loan from Benfica. So, all in all, I think they've had a brilliant transfer window in terms of, again, filling the areas where they needed to. And of course, I forgot, um, they also got uh, Matt Doherty in from Wolves at right back. Although I will argue that He's, he may not necessarily be an upgrade on Serge Aurier because he's mostly played as a wing-back for Wolves, which is where he excelled. And he's always been shaky when played as a back four. For example, for Ireland, whenever he's played as a right-back for Ireland, he struggled. And he struggled for Spurs as well in the first few games. But overall, I think it's been a very good window for Spurs. And again, should be top four contenders with the, with the way they've done their business. Nice. I think one of the key features for them is if they stay healthy. Last year, there were so many injuries and um, watching um, Sun and Kane's uh, just connecting has been an absolute, probably the most interesting two-player combination so far um, of, of yeah. all the leagues. So and far. the most important thing about Tottenham is that uh, they have to stop being a group of nice guys. They have to stop being a group of... Hey, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. Uh, we saw that at Old Trafford, didn't we? We saw it, what Lamella did. It doesn't. That's exactly right. Lamella is 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 the prototype for that. Um, let's spend just another minute or so, Harshal. What are some some the the best of the rest in terms of signings? What what do you think are going to be some just some absolute big difference maker signings for for the other clubs that we didn't discuss? I think. Um, Everton and Aston Villa, I mean, I know we're talking about individual signings, but just yeah. in terms of overall transfer business, Everton and Aston Villa have absolutely smashed it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at Everton, Ames Rodriguez, what a player, what a class player that they've brought into the Premier League and they got him for a free. Obviously, because Real Madrid wanted to get rid of him, but he's linked up with Ancelotti under whom he's had some of his best club football. So, And he's already showing in the Premier League, he's showing his class, he's scoring goals, he's setting up his teammates, he's able to sort of keep possession and sort of sprinkle that little bit of magic in the final third. And even the other guys have brought in, they essentially bought a new midfield, right? Alan and Abdullah Gokore came in as well. They signed Ben Gibson towards the end of the window. So they've got uh, a young, talented English centre-back in as well because they didn't have depth at centre-back. And this is obviously not a transfer, but Ancelotti seems to have unlocked Dominic Calvert-Lewin. He's scoring goals for fun, both for, for Everton and for England as well. He scored on his debut for England. So I think Everton are extremely exciting to watch at the moment and their transfers have been really good and that makes next week's game really interesting, the, the Merseyside derby. And secondly, Villa, again, made a lot of top quality additions to their to the team, filled up holes where they needed to be. They, they've had issues at goalkeeper. Uh, I think Dean Smith used four or maybe even five goalkeepers last season. So, any Martinez has come in 
and I think and he's become the first Villa goalkeeper to keep two successive clean sheets in a row in I think eight years, which tells you everything that's been going on at that club. Yeah. So Martinez has come in. They've they've got uh, Ross Barkley in on loan, which will make that midfield absolutely brilliant. Ollie Watkins from Brentford, superb signing as striker, and uh, Matty Cash at right back. He's gone under the radar a little bit, but they signed him for 18 million from Forest. Another young English player who's who used to be a midfielder, but he moved to right back a couple of seasons ago and absolutely killed it in the championship, which is why they moved for him. So again, weak spots addressed, and uh, they look like a very good, solidly coached side at the moment. So I expect Villa and Everton to do well this season, based on those transfers and the fact that their managers look like they're getting the best out of those guys. Daniele, how about how about you? Any any signings you want to mention real quickly? I think that overall uh, the league, the Premier League, has to be happy because uh, I'm looking at the um, the standings, individual standings for goals scored, and I see so many English flags: Calvert Lewin, mm-hmm. I see Vardy, Wilson, Barnford, um, Harry Kane. And uh, I was I was reading an article by Sky Sport, and uh, this is the highest number of goals scored after four rounds in the Premier League yeah. in, a, in a decade, 37. And that's already 12 more than last year. So I think that uh, also with a view to the to the Euros coming up, I think that um, England should uh, should be happy as a, as a nation. Well, I will tell you, it helps when City are spending net spends for the league, about 50 million investment, um, you know, La Liga is, is probably around that number. And and the uh, English Premier League has exercised discipline and they only spent 1.1, 1.2 billion uh, in transfers. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not a big surprise to see all those um, goals being scored, of which brings up a really good point, Daniele. In the last two or three years, have you seen the, the striker position or the style of play evolve? You know, my, my first impression is target strikers, at least in the English Premier League, Lacassette is sort of that. Harry Kane is sort of that. But I really feel like that Giroud type of target or Lukaku has largely disappeared in the EPL. Um, tell me what your thoughts are on the evolution of what it is to be a striker and how that applies to, to your own game. Yeah, first off, I, w- I would like to defend Giroud because even if he doesn't score much, the work that he does off the ball is unbelievable. He always keeps the center backs occupied. And if you build the right system around them, you're going to have players, whether these are the attacking midfielders or wingers or uh, even central midfielders making runs, he's going to make the team successful, a.k.a. Uh, friends at uh, the, uh, the 2018 uh, World Cup. But I don't know if it um, exactly how it evolved. I will say that there is a consistency in that it's always uh, the number nines, the, the player, the strikers playing in maybe as a center forward in a three-man system or uh, as one of the two forwards. If you play with two strikers, there is the exception of uh, Liverpool because of the way they play with Firmino you know, being, you know, we talked about the false nine and the wingers getting a lot of goals. But other than that, you have Kane, you have uh, you have Barty, you have the usual faces, and uh, I don't see that changing significantly in the in the next couple of years. 
Okay. How about your take, um, Harshel? Yeah, it's definitely changed. And um, again, shout out to Olivier Giroud because, I mean, he became the second goal scorer in France's history in this past week, which he's clearly doing something right if he's managed to go past Michel Platini in the scoring charts and he's only behind Henri. So, in the Premier League, I think, yes, that the target man as such, and they say about 15, 20 years ago, it was quite usual to see teams set up in a 4-4-2 and they had, a, it was literally like a big man and small man combo where there would be one target man and there would be a quick uh, sort of dynamic striker around him who would be there to play off the long balls that he would win and the second balls that he would win and try and create stuff from there. But it's the tactical shift that we've seen where teams don't really play with two strikers anymore. If you're playing with one man up front, I think that there's, and the way the game has evolved, that, that one man has to do a lot more than just be a focal point or just be a poacher. Even with Lacazette, as you mentioned earlier, under Arteta, we've seen him come and play almost like a false nine because he drops into midfield, he drops deep, picks up the pass from, say, the midfielder and then spins around and runs into the space. It's not just about staying, you know, high up front. And that's how I think the role has evolved where you need to be a complete centre forward. Look at Harry Kane. I mean, that's what he's basically doing for Spurs and even for England, right? Where he's dropping deep and playing Son in through. But he also obviously has the ability to score goals, which he's done throughout the years, the last four or five years. So, it's a very difficult position, I think, to play in the league now in the Premier League because you have to be an all-rounder. That's why Ryan Brewster arguably didn't make it, was it was sold by Liverpool because he is a penalty box poacher and someone who plays on the last line. And that's not how Klopp wants his strikers to play, which is why they sold him. Yeah. Well, I, I really find it very interesting how the, the position is evolved and how it's going to evolve further where you have a Firmino who's, uh, who isn't necessarily a target striker, but he just does so much work in the engine room to free up the other strikers. Uh, you know, I will tell you uh, along a similar note and one that I think it was an outstanding signing, uh, lead signing Rodrigo, uh, who obviously made an immediate impact in that one, um, one, one tie with man city, uh, and of which Leeds could have won that game three, one, if it weren't for the heroics of, uh, of Ederson. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see how Rodrigo evolves uh, from Valencia uh, and was picked up almost for pocket change, a mere 20 million pounds. Uh, and he's a he's a Spanish international, right? Brazilian born, but Spanish uh, international. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to kind of see how that that um, how his position involves in the Bielsa system. Um, so uh, really fascinated to see where things go and fascinated to see where our our own star Daniele's uh how his game evolves over time so it's about Rodrigo I would say that the goal against City was a way for him to have the leads and for game after what he did in his debut against <laughs> Liverpool causing that uh quite uh unclever PK uh in the what was the 85th minute which get, then gave Liverpool the win but I agree he's uh he's got a lot of potential and uh um, I see him fit, fit very well with uh, uh, with Leeds. I don't know if uh, he's gonna carve out a starting spot for himself. That's uh, that that remains to be seen. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how a Bamford Rodrigo will, will there be the mojo for that. Um, time will tell, but uh, but like that pickup very much.
Let, let's turn our attention to some of the previews for the upcoming uh, uh, weekend. Um, Everton, Liverpool. Just give us some high notes, Harsha. What are the two or three points that we need to pay attention to and how could there be a surprise? Because Liverpool, despite their seven loss drubbing, are still a very strong favorite amongst the uh, sports books. Liverpool will obviously start as favorites, but this is probably the best chance that Everton will have to win a Merseyside derby. In I mean, it's the best chance they've had in the last 10 years or so. They've not won a Merseyside derby, I think, in 10 years. So, and bear in mind that Liverpool will still be missing Thiago because of COVID. They'll be missing Mane. Nabi Keita has also tested positive for COVID on international duty. So, that's three players who will not be featuring, two of them in midfield. So, I, I'm really interested to see if what Klopp, what sort of team he puts up because uh, I think Jordan, Jordan Henderson will play, will be back because he's playing for England later tonight against Belgium. So, I'm assuming he'll be back in midfield. So, uh, it, it's not really that Liverpool won't really have a midfield because they'll have their first choice in terms of Fabinho, Wijnaldum and Henderson, but they won't have Thiago and Keita, the guys who are the sort of difference makers in terms of creativity. And secondly, uh, we spoke about the high line that Liverpool have used. Again, very interested to see if they keep up with that against Everton because you've got Calvert-Lewin, you've got Richarlison who can sprint through and go one-on-one if you give them space. And you've got James who can play those passes to them accurately. So, I really want to see how James sort of whether he manages to find space in the in those pockets around the Liverpool midfield and defence and uh, whether the likes of Allen and Ducore can shut down Liverpool's attacks, you know, because it's always going to be directed through the flanks with Robertson and Alexander-Arnold and, uh, you know, then sort of supplying the ammunition for the likes of Mane. Obviously, Mane is in there, so Salah and I guess Jota will start. So, yeah, I, I think it will be an interesting game. Liverpool will be slightly weakened. And after that 7-2, I think this could be a good chance for Everton to capitalize. Give us a scoreline. One all. One off. I don't think Liverpool will manage. Yeah, what do you think? You agree? Yeah, agree with that. You have a very angry Liverpool side who's called to react to the embarrassing result against Villa. And on the other end, you have uh, an Everton side who are flying too high and they're going to be brought back to earth in this game. 3 nothing. <laughs> 3 nothing Liverpool. You heard it here. I like that. Um, Chelsea's, Chelsea Southampton. Uh, this, to, to me, still feels like uh, Lampard has some a little more formidable co- uh, competition to put the puzzle pieces together. Uh, Harsha, what's your quick take on that game? Again, um, if the teams play with the tactics as they have so far, I think Chelsea will walk away with it because Arsene Hoodle is another one who's played a very high line for some reason. He, not that he didn't play a high line and that goes with the pressing approach that he employs, but Again, it's been 10 yards higher than what we've seen earlier on last season and uh, from them. And they've been torn apart as well. Spurs to tore them apart because of that high line. And Chelsea have the attackers to do that. I mean, Werner is one of the best players in the world if you give him, if you give him that space behind, behind your defensive line. So, this actually might be the game where we see Werner finally score and sort of get his name on the Premier League scoring charts and show Chelsea fans what he's all about. So, I, I, I want Southampton to adjust with... Yeah, in terms of scoreline, maybe 3-0 Chelsea. 3-0 Chelsea. How about you, Daniele? Yeah. 
Well, I'm going to say that another English striker will score, Danny Ings, so Southampton <laughs> will have one, and then I'm going to go for the Italian guy again on PK, Jorginho, 1-1. I agree. I I'm going to go 1-1 on this one, too. This is just a banana peel. Southampton's been playing really tough. Uh, so, And, you know, a lot of the Chelsea players are coming back from international duty, while as yet uh, Southampton has, has unfortunately not had to worry about that, that problem there. Um, Man City Arsenal. Let's talk about that. Um, uh, Daniela, lead us off uh, off the top. What 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 do you expect to see out of this game, and what sort of surprises could happen? Uh, well, this is the game that you labeled uh, a couple months ago. Uh, Luke, I'm your father. Huh? That's uh, the connection. <laughs> right. I uh, I see Man City winning this because they have not started off the uh the right foot so far uh with the loss against uh against Leicester and the the draw against Leeds I see them winning obviously considering a goal at least I see them winning 2-1 or 3-1 um tactically I'm gonna leave it up to our shell to help us see what's gonna happen there it's gonna be a tactical masterpiece hopefully our what do you think yeah I mean as you you've spoken about this earlier in previous podcasts and where Arteta is sort of trying to implement this similar system to what Pep has at City but he also obviously has all the inside knowledge in terms of maybe where there's a weakness in the City uh, system and as the, I, I don't know I mean I, I my heart tells me that City will win this one but it could be tricky because remember they don't have either Aguero or Jesus and you do have obviously the likes of Sterling who can score, but you lose out on a lot when you don't have not just one, but two of your most clinical finishers. So they will create chances. They will, uh, and the Arsenal defense will maybe probably struggle a little bit, but they are stronger than they were maybe a few months ago. So in terms of scoreline, I'm going for again, I, I think it would be a close one. I think it might just be a one on. So the, the bookmakers are, are having Man City as big favorites. I agree with that. Uh, largely because the most underreported thing in the English Premier League is the injuries Man City has had. Uh, Laporte uh, and Silva have just come back, right, in the last game. Aguero, yeah. Cancelo, and Gundogan uh, are supposed to be available um, for that upcoming match. Now, I don't know if oh, they're gonna, they? okay. I don't know if they're going to get the full time, but if you have those five players missing along with Jesus you're going to have a step down. So I, I'm willing to give Man City a, a pass yeah. for the first uh, three games that they've played with those sort of injuries. So I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a 3-1, and there's going to be one cool Obama-Yang counter-strike, and uh, Man City's going to dominate possession. It's going to be 70-plus percent possession, uh, and they're going to have a super high line, and that's why Obama-Yang's going to get his goal. So um, uh, let's go ahead and turn our attention to the to the next match, which is the Man Man United uh, Newcastle game. Harshal, give us the the short version because I know you probably want to talk about this yeah. a lot. But can they write the ship? Maybe not because Newcastle a game against Newcastle is probably the sort of banana peel for Solskjaer and the way he plays. We all know under Solskjaer United love teams who attack and have the ball because then they have the space to counter attack and Newcastle are the absolute opposite they will sit back in their own half there will be no space in behind for the likes of Rashford uh, and Greenwood to run onto 
Remember that Martial is suspended, so they won't have Martial. Cavani will not play because he is, his quarantine period will not have ended. So it will probably they'll probably have to move Greenwood or Ashford into the center into the center forward position and play someone else on the flanks. So I can see this being one where United drop points again. It could probably I, I, United have the individual quality to win the game, but tactically it it seems as if. Uh, United might slip up. So, again, probably maybe a one-all or a, maybe a nil-nil. So, on one hand, we have a team who uh, will fight to not relegate this season and on the other hand, uh, we have Newcastle. So, are... <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're just what, one point above, above the drop right now? What is it? <laughs> but City are, so even City, are, so City are, even even Man City have like four points from three games. They're, they're a point ahead of United. So hey, you know, I'm very confident Man United will do well in the championship. I I, I think they'll be <laughs> they'll do fine in that league. Especially if with that with that project, uh, the big picture we're talking about, we're gonna have one of the big six in the championship. <laughs> exactly right. But I see uh, here uh, really scolding. Uh, scoring off his guys and again, big teams. If you're expected to be a big team, you don't have um, two losses in a row, right? That's kind of a rule. Give me a score. Give me some score lines, guys. Two zero menu. I am going to be super pessimistic and go for nil nil, so that when if United actually do end up winning the game, I can be a little bit happier. Yeah. I'm going to go one zero menu uh, on that one. So, um, good. Well, let's go ahead and turn our attention to the Leicester-Aston Villa, where Aston Villa is going to get a pretty stern test uh, after passing the first test of Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, because um, this is obviously a game between the two teams who've, or two of the teams who've been sort of the surprise of the season so far in terms of how well they've done. Uh, I think Leicester might just do be able to get over uh, Villa in terms of a result. But I think Villa will still show enough in the game that they won't get relegated because they have the players. They now have the players to not be involved in the relegation fight. They should be in probably lower mid-table now. So, I'd go for a 2-1 win to Leicester, but Villa to show everyone that, you know what, we're not going to be in relegation trouble. Well, um, Daniele, what's your prediction on the scoreline of the number two team in the Premier League versus the number three team in the Premier League? Well, Aston Villa have uh, 11 goals scored, two goals against. So I wonder if they're going to be able to contain Vardy. I'm going to I'm gonna play safe and uh, say it's going to be a 1-1 draw. What about you, Chris? <laughs> That's such an Italian answer, uh, but I'm going to agree with it's you. It's good for both. It's they're going to make an agreement. One I think it's going to be... Um, I'm going to go 2-1 Leicester just to be different from what you were, even though I was thinking 1-1 myself. So um, how about the, the final interesting matchup of, of the week, uh, the upcoming weekend, which is the Leeds-Wolves game? This is kind of the, the Europa um, spot in the league. What do you think is going to happen here, Harshel? I mean... Four games into the season, I think it's still a little too early, maybe, to say that Leeds will be challenging for Europa. Oh, I've drunk the Kool Aid. I have drunk the Kool Aid. <laughs> no, I agree with some. I mean, I, I, it's hard not to get carried away with Leeds, right? I mean, in terms of how they play and the whole Bielsa cult and everything, it's just they're a very attractive side to watch on the pitch as well. So, yeah, I can see them making a run for Europa, but 
this game will show will tell us a lot about that team because wolves are have been one of the most sort of you know tenacious and uh, hard working sides in the league over the last two seasons but this year they've it seems as if something's going a little bit wrong in terms of how they're setting up or just because they've lost a couple of key players which they've not done earlier right they've lost hota and uh, they've lost uh, matt doherty who were key parts of that team so Bruno is having to integrate new players into the team, and I mean, even though you can argue that having a 35 million pound right back from Barcelona isn't exactly the the uh, uh, a challenge to sort of you know be upset about because he's a really good player, you know Nelson Semedo who's come in to replace Doherty. But I think Leeds will be able to give Wolves quite a run for their money. This would be a this will be a close game, one or. I think one it's going to be one of the most intense matchup for the rhythm for the um yeah. the tackling the committed runs the execution of the pass so it's definitely one to watch uh, i hope they don't cancel each other out um and uh i hope we're gonna see a classic uh, uh high scoring games maybe a 2-2 my take is that uh you know the wolves are very comfortable sitting back um and they just have a, a an awesome team ability to counter strike but i'm still going to go with leads 2-1 on this one here um because i i still think they're the real deal uh, they're on the leads bandwagon totally even even if even if they they don't even make it to europa i just feel like they've infused a level of of hope and possibility for the league where you don't have to chelsea or man u your way to a championship that you can be really intelligent even without the money um i don't think they're going to win the premier league anytime soon liverpool is an example of kind of the hipster uh effort plus tactics plus money but i just feel like it would be great if if the premier league could populate itself with more folks that can that can take advantage of the 21st century way of playing football so um so harshal i want to ask you one final question before we wrap things up Earlier we talked about themes for the league uh about it being messy about dogma versus pragmatism. I think this weekend's going to be a great acid test for the dogmatists. How pragmatic are they against sides they're playing? Leeds and Wolves being a perfect example of that, right? Um what what are what are some other observations you have uh, as as we as we wind down the podcast here? Small sample size but it seems as if defending has gone for a toss this season there's been some atrocious defending in the league so far the, and i'm not just talking about i mean obviously some of the penalties that have been given away have been for handballs and the new handball law all of that is there as well but just otherwise just some of it seems as if teams have players have forgotten their basics and united were one of the guiltiest parties against spurs in terms of that particular accusation but even liverpool we've seen some poor defending from liverpool we've seen poor defending from um, sheffield united for example we were, we all used to hold we, we were all sort of you know um, enthralled by how despite scoring just 38 39 goals last season they finished where they did in the league because of their defense and their goalkeeper but sheffield united haven't been that strong defensively other sides even city for example they have been open in general but you you'd expect them to not concede five against the leicester side and give away three penalties in that game none of them were for handball and all three were committed by three different players for fouls in the box so 
I don't know what's happening with defending. You know, whether it's because it's a short preseason, whether it's because teams haven't really had a lot of time to be able to play together and get that defensive rhythm and sort of structure back, whatever the reason is, but it seems, and that's also why so many goals are being scored. So, so I think that teams going to continue. That uh, the team managed by an Italian coach is first in the league. <laughs> so that's all it takes, huh, to to create a a championship side. Daniele, besides that observation, what other observation? <laughs> observation, uh, some crazy results. Some, um, you know, Liverpool, like like we said, second worst defense in the league. Obviously, that's that's gonna change, but um, that was surprising as well as um, Manu uh, pulling off some uh, very sad performances. But I don't know, Chris. It's still too early. Um, I think that. By uh, when Christmas comes around, we're gonna have uh, Liverpool yeah. back on top. We're gonna have, um, I think, you know what, Tottenham could be uh, could be up there if if they they, they begin being a team of <coughs> that word. But um, I see Man City also emerging from the the 14th position that they are right now, and. Um, and then we'll see. I don't know. What do you have, uh, Chris? Do you think Everton will hold up to the high places? I don't think they will, but I hope they do. Uh, you know, I, I will say that I've heard so much commentary on why the season has been um, funny. And, uh, you know, the, the main suspects are short preseason, um, higher lines, uh, you know, that those those have been the ones that, sort of resonate with me to me injuries 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 you know I, I really feel like unfortunately injuries are going to be one of the main actors of this season because of the congestion that we're going to have and, and uh, don't forget covid in terms of teams losing yeah. out and keep players to COVID. absolutely absolutely so so my take on it is i'm willing to forgive right the defenses in the in the last few weeks because this is what their preseason was right and now we're kind of getting to the business of the regular season kicking into earnest. I, I am a, I'm a Liverpool fan. I enjoy watching Man City play, but I also, I'm, I'm so happy that Aston is up there and Everton is up there to make the league at least this, this smoky myth that the Premier League is, has parody. And because, I want it to. I really want to believe that. I think dollars and cents are going to be what drives it. And I'm sorry if that sounds cynical, but that's kind of the people with the resources generally do best in everything in life. So um, I'm just looking forward to, a, I hope, one of the most entertaining leagues um, in years. Um, and I see that happening in the EPL. I see that happening in the City. Ah, I don't see that happening in La Liga or Bundesliga, right? And um, and I, I want to put my seatbelt on and and enjoy myself. So um, so with that, guys, we should probably wrap up. Um, thank you all um, so much. Um, we are sponsored by the EPL Prospectus, a 280-page guide of the upcoming season created by a team of 25-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for football, analytics plus eye candy, available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao ciao.